you're listening to Sherd's Podcast, where we're dedicated to exploring the peripheries of world literature and unearthing neglected texts from outside the mainstream canon. Kew Gardens were ice-bound. There was a biting frost in the air and early darkness had fallen. The world was in the death and rigour of winter, and Judy, who loved light and heat, kept indoors when she could not be at her work in the plant houses, like a seedling that wraps itself up close in warmth and oblivion under the ground. That was the opening paragraph of Ronald Fraser's novella Flower Phantoms, which is the topic of our discussion today. It was originally published in 1926 by Jonathan Cape, and later republished by Valancourt Books in 2014, with an introduction by Mark Valentine. The book concerns a short period in the life of a young woman, Judith, who works as a student of botanical sciences at Kew Gardens. Finding herself beset on either side by her rational and fiscally-minded brother Hubert, and the earnest and poetic suitor Roland, she retreats into a world of fantasy and self-realization, engaging in a psychosexual communion with the soul of an orchid and various other hothouse plants. Partly a novel tackling ideas of liberated femininity, part erotic dream vision, we thought Flower Phantoms was a curious and unique work that deserves a much wider readership. So welcome to the first episode of Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prouse. How are you doing, Rob? Yeah, good. Thanks very much. So... We're talking about Ronald Fraser's book from 1926, Flower Phantoms. Uh, what What were your first impressions of the book, Rob? Did you Did you enjoy it? Um, yeah, I did. I definitely enjoyed reading it. Certainly at the beginning of the book, it felt like reading some fairly standard Victorian literature, and obviously it's actually not Victorian literature. But then, for me, all of a sudden, it kind of exploded into life, became something much more interesting. And then, as we'll talk about much more later, uh, the end of the book it was problematic somehow. <laughs> yeah, I would I would have to agree. But I, I also really liked the book. I, I heard about it through Mark Valentine, the writer and critic, and the, the person who actually writes the introduction for this book. And when I heard that, that Ronald Fraser was such an obscure writer who seemed to be rather forgotten uh, but who in his lifetime had been encouraged by people like H.G. Wells uh, I thought I really should should check it out but what intrigued me most was this juxtaposition like you say of of uh, a real mundanity with a kind of visionary quality that's quite unlike anything I've 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 read before I also really like the way that the prose becomes extremely elevated uh, during these visionary passages, uh, ascends to a kind of Miltonic grandeur. There's a real grandeur to the language that I, I, I find irresistible. And also just the strangeness of the, the premise. I think its whimsy alone is enough to recommend it, but I certainly think there are depths to the novel that we can we can explore as well. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, it's uh, it's incredibly rich as a book to kind of sit down with and look and try and unpack. Uh, it's been, yeah, a really nice experience to kind of actually try and get beneath the novel itself, or, well, novella. So, so uh, I believe you have a few words about Ronald Fraser's 
life. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, as you said, um, obviously in his time, he seems to have been an awful lot better known than he is now. There's very little biographical information about him other than uh, what exists in the introduction to the book itself, uh, which seems to be repeated online quite a bit, which is simply that he seems to have had a fairly yeah conventional upbringing, but he was uh, interested in poetry and was writing from a very young age. And then I guess quite strangely for an author, it wasn't his main uh, profession. He was... Uh, a, yeah, served in the in the Foreign Office um, and uh, in British embassies in Argentina and France uh, and then was the government director of the Suez Canal and was knighted, uh, yeah, knighted in 1949. Uh, so obviously extremely successful as a diplomat and then alongside it publishes these very strange books uh, which kind of, of it seem to be... He seems to have picked up uh, an interest in Eastern mysticism and, I guess, things that are going on with theosophy and things like this at the time. And then, yeah, after after he finished his life in diplomatic service, he became further involved in the New Age movement and ran a meditation centre in Oxford, uh, which he did until the end of his life. Uh, so quite a strange kind of dual life that he seems to have led. Uh, and I feel this is definitely, definitely something that comes out in the novel itself. Are we going to drop the Sir? <laughs> well, it's interesting is it? because he um, obviously his full name is Sir Arthur Ronald Fraser, but he publishes under the name Ronald Fraser. And it certainly seems in that respect, like perhaps he saw those two aspects of what he did as, as quite separate things. So, yeah, maybe we can just call him Ronald Fraser. Ron. Ron. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, so perhaps we could consider Judy our main character first. Judy lives in a house with her brother, which they've inherited from, from their father, and they seem to live fairly comfortably. And Hubert, her brother, is very explicit about his desire to have Judy out of the, out of the house to marry her off to, to someone. And in that sense, he acts in something more like a paternal role. It's it's quite difficult to to picture such a relationship now. Uh, but I wonder if even at the time of its publication, it may have even seemed a little antiquated. Um, I think it's one of the aspects of the book that, that ties it strongly to a, a, f- a former era. So there are two main male characters in the book Hubert and Roland uh, Hubert being her brother and Roland her suitor she's by turns infantilized by her brother and idealized by Roland Hubert treats her like a child but Roland seems to be equal equally reductive in his adoration and continually trying to frame Judy in poetic language he seems to think it's possible to to capture her spirit, to capture her beauty and make it comprehensible to himself. Uh, and I think capture is quite a key word here. He likens her to a, a golden boy or a princely page in some wintry and Russian court. But Judy resists these encroachments upon her person. Why do you think that is, Rob? Well, I certainly felt like uh, she's put forward as, on the one hand, certainly a very headstrong character. Uh, she seems to be very confident in knowing what she doesn't want. Um, but also there's a kind of confusion about her place in the world. And uh, in terms of the the, the description of gender the way she is so often described uh, as a boy or boyish um i was quite interested in how that may have uh, been an attempt to bring out yeah this this kind of perhaps dissatisfaction with her place uh you know under under the under her brother's roof and very much under his control but also yeah her dissatisfaction with her suitor and um i hope you don't mind me bringing this in uh 
but what you were saying previously um, about the the anagrams of the author's name and her suitor's name, uh, obviously Ronald and Roland, the descriptions of her, which aren't the poetic uh, kind of flower, you know, things taken from literature from from uh, Roland are all written in that kind of authorial voice and they come from uh, Ronald. And it's interesting because it's never, it's, uh, you know, they're, they're very often over the top about her, her beauty and her figure, but also very specific about, yeah, this, this kind of like boyish charm that she has. And it's interesting in that respect, the kind of admiration that comes from the author how closely tied those two characters are sorry not characters how how closely tied roland to ronald is he certainly seems to be the the closest thing we have for a stand-in for the for the author himself and it is quite interesting that they are in a sense engaged in the same task roland the character wants to frame Judy's essence uh, in exactly the same way that the the writer Ronald Fraser seems to want to do but in in all of in all of Roland's poeticizing there's a, a purity that we see in his descriptions of, of Judy she's never regarded exactly as a sexual being being but rather an innocent she's she's described as a yellow daffodil blooming in the snow or a firefly among the snowdrops and there's something in Roland's love that's much closer to adoration rather than ardor by that I mean that in his adoration which is a, a word that, that shares its Latin root with oration uh, it's more like a song of praise or an attempt to capture something in speech rather than real passionate fire which seems to be what what Judy desires we've both noticed this almost sadomasochistic aspect of of Judy's inner life would you say that that she desires something more violently erotic Rob than Roland is able to offer yeah I think the the thing about desire is actually f- fascinating throughout the book because it's a word that crops up repeatedly. And in terms of Roland, we hear about his desire, but yeah, absolutely, it seems it seems a very chaste desire. <laughs> I don't know if you also felt that. I think that Roland's access to Judy's inner life is is so thwarted that he has very little notion of 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 this deep sexuality, let alone anything verging on the the sadomasochistic she says at one point to him it would be exquisite to be hugged by a cactus all prickly and hurting to bleed to death in a delicious and agonizing embrace how do you think rodent takes takes this statement rob yeah i think uh rodent clearly finds it incredibly difficult to uh to yeah see beyond this kind of like surface level of Judy when she talks quite specifically and calls herself a sadist to him uh, when she says sometimes I bite the hearts out of roses I'm a sadist with flowers he responds and says uh, you're a lovely cruel and irrefutable as life itself but then he says there is a new change in the sunset irradiated iris cloud and at this point, he's, he sort of lapses into this poetic language to describe her eyes. But that's that's where he stops. He can't he can't move beyond the kind of glassy surface of her her eyes. And he speaks later about wanting to understand what's going on behind her eyes uh, to to really move beyond this surface. There's also a passage in which he. Um He's struck by how alien a thing the the human eye is uh, when he when he looks into its depths he's absolutely horrified by by what he sees as a kind of machine and not an object that he can aestheticize 
which is the only way he seems to know how to treat Judy. When when Judy turns to this plant kingdom, this flower empire, as we might call it, she seems to see a kind of primordial sexual violence that 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 she might desire. Um, she says later to herself how wonderful it would be to dissect an orchid to cut one's lover open and slipped him up and separate him part from part then going on to ask how would a flower like to dissect a woman uh, so she clearly sees a reciprocal reciprocal relationship there that Roland isn't going to be able to offer to her yeah for me for me that's one of the most perhaps even the most interesting paragraph of the entire novella this it sums up for me so many of the the themes that i find really interesting this idea of dissecting uh, obviously comes from her work clearly uh, it's kind of a, a scientific endeavor and so this this kind of idea of dissection quite clearly comes from uh, yeah from sciences and the the kind of importance of the role of dissection, kind of the emergence of the in enlightenment, uh, this idea that it, you could begin to cut something open and actually understand what was inside it. On one hand, being kind of like a violation of like a some kind of sacred whole, but then. To kind of like gain knowledge uh, was was kind of uh, worthwhile, and it was a, I guess a huge shift when when specifically human bodies were able to be cut up, and so there seems to be something that he's pushing towards this similar quest for knowledge in dissecting, but pushing that scientific method into a more spiritual realm. So the idea that you could dissect a flower might not necessarily mean quite literally cutting it up, but to 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 understand it in a fuller way and in this case a more spiritual way. That that's brilliant, Rob. That's fantastic. Perhaps this is a bit too much of a contemporary projection onto it. Uh, but I was also thinking of uh, the kind of in a kind of like sadomasochistic or that kind of like uh, sexual role playing or something like that that you that it kind of undercuts those conventional power relations and so in another sense I guess this this kind of dissection begins to pull apart and understand those kind of relations that Judy is obviously very much a part of with her brother and with Roland uh, so that might be stretching things a bit far, but I thought it was quite interesting. That that kind of the idea of knowledge and to know someone else, the kind of intimacy, I suppose, is maybe the the word there. The intimacy that would come with a knowledge of the inside would possibly be something that happens with uh, that kind of sexual. Yeah, the 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 kind of uh, sadomasochistic thing that she's she's very much putting out do you feel that she comes back from these endeavors with a, a greater understanding of um her familial relationships i think it's it's hard for me these sections specifically this and and the section we spoke about earlier where she speaks about biting into a rose are the kind of like pinnacles of moments where she might move beyond the kind of like structures around her and yeah as we'll as we'll discuss later for me anyway it certainly feels like things start to move back um i feel like there's a there's something in the in the book which kind of always pushes towards a balance and for me the most interesting parts are where they're at their most unbalanced and i feel like this this is one of those moments at this strange hour, the sky, the trees, all the lineaments of the world that grew from the mists of rose madder and pale blue were unreal. The air was full of a dim shimmer of birdsong that mounted as the daylight increased and streamed in ever stronger pulsations from the invisible hearts of the bushes, from morning bright chapels aloft in the cedars. The leaves sang. 
The universe was all an infinity of little green singing flames, each pointed leaf burning momently brighter until the material world seemed to dissolve and float away in a rack of flame and song. With it too, there was a dissolution in Judith. When a certain faintness that arose from the excess of beauty had passed, she found herself with a means of knowing the plants and all that was going on around her. The drawing of food from the air, of water from the soil, the exchange of substances through the conductive region of the trunk, the transpiration of watery vapours through the pores of the leaves. The physiological processes she felt dimly as she felt the inward changes of her own body, the action of their mechanical tissues she felt just as she felt the action of her own muscles, and certain other processes analogous to the spiritual processes in man she quite intimately perceived. Gazing up at the glowing blossoms of the chestnut each blossom, she imagined, an almondy bower on a mountainside. She felt suddenly the alpine spirit and magnificent exaltation of the tree. Advancing a little, she saw ahead of her, in the shadowy clefts of those green mountains, a mass of rhododendrons, white and red, and joined in their solemn adoration as they held their great lanterns to the rising sun. Then it entered her head that she must see and possess all the beauty of that place in the intimacy and wonder of that hour. The day was advancing quickly. The new sunlight lay on the open lawns in fine tissues of gold. Although there was still dew in the long shadows of the bushes, she sped therefore from point to point, coursing like some golden fawn of the daybreak, leaving her slot in grass and sandy path and meadow of bluebells, and at this point she stopped with a beating heart before hawthorn, at that before magnolia, lilac, broom or irises in a bed, and at every point it seemed to her that she was saluted by the flowers, that some fair rhododendron smiled at her shyly like a gruse girl, or a tulip bowed good morning with high and disdainful neck. How gracefully they sprang! How splendid was the strong thrust of stalk or branch! With what lovely consideration did the trees dispose their masses! And when at last she stood in the circle of the azalea garden, the flowers leapt and swelled about her like flames about the stake, delicate flames of love that desired to martyr her, and a wind blew with the ardour of their passion in it, and she opened her jacket offering her lily bosom to their fierce tongues. As the novel progresses, Judy begins to feel a growing kinship with the plants at Kew Gardens and speculates on their inner life, eventually having visions in which she enters this strange fantasy world where plants not only reveal their sensual essence to her, but even have the power of speech and they discourse with her on on lofty f philosophical subjects such as the nature nature of reality um I, I wondered to what extent you see judy's desire to enter this fantasy world as a form of sexual or erotic awakening does it does it represent a place where she can do as she wills with her body and give it to whomever she pleases to even exercise control over, over other bodies. I don't know, what did you think about that? Uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, f for me, certainly in the early encounters, that certainly is something that I would feel. Uh, there's a, there's a, a strange play with... I don't know, something about the giving up of or like kind of like letting go as a way of taking control. So when she kind of this what gets described as kind of like a descent into the plant world, the the first one, I think he actually says uh, there are extremes of experience to which she was not ready to give herself. And this this process, this slow moving towards giving up is kind of put forward as a way of actually taking control because she perhaps is giving up certain 
restrictions things that impose themselves but then i feel that that may be uh, certainly in terms of the language of her later encounters actually as as the the orchid that she develops their relationship with becomes more and more human uh, actually this this giving up becomes far more of a conventional power relation i don't know how you felt about those state or if you saw those same stages or if um, yeah yeah um i i i did i i sensed a kind of incremental transition towards this essence uh, that she seems to believe is, exists in the in in the plant world and which she wants to be part of but that ultimately her mind doesn't allow itself to be entirely free of the strictures of her ordinary mundane life with with Hubert and Roland i mean in some ways the 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 character exhibits some of the aspects of the new woman right uh she's kind of mentally if not finan- financially independent she's she's an edu- she's educated she's a scientist she's sensitive and spirited but control is exercised over her financial and sexual autonomy uh, it's hubert that's going to decide whom she's going to marry and what her future will be and the sense is that in being released from that she is she's going to go on a journey of of self-realization in 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 this fantasy world but that isn't exactly what she finds it seems to be i agree particularly because of the change in the style of the novel i think that's that's thrown into quite sharp relief by the shift to a much grander style that fraser uses in these these passages it becomes more and more elevated and burns with a kind of intensity we could even say that the language blooms in those passages as judy's own self seems to bloom but rather than finding a place where she can escape the kind of view of herself exclusively through the male lens that seems to come back to haunt her even in in this fantasy world uh, as like you say the the flowers become more and more anthropomorphized what i expected her to find in that fantasy world was a a place of Dionysian chaos and and formlessness but that isn't what she finds at all she finds a kind of world of sensuous and res- restrained beauty in getting closer to nature she doesn't she doesn't encounter it in its raw and untamed state she finds something much more refined and characterized by a kind of apollonian order w- would would you say so yeah absolutely uh yeah certainly the 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 word raw comes up a lot uh, at the beginning when she's talking about the 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 cactus and there's a moment i think where roland says to her oh life nasty raw stuff and then she describes the cactus in exactly the same way as raw and describes their inner life as the life of butchers and some kind of old men which i found quite funny mm. but certainly yeah that that was what i expected to find uh, and then exactly as you say this apollonian um structure and and almost feudal kind of uh that this orchid becomes at different times a, a king and a and a prince and a chieftain but certainly she's kind of like swept off her feet by him rather than any kind of chaos that she may find in the the plant world it certainly for me, started to feel an awful lot like a like a fairy tale world, but I guess maybe quite specifically a kind of chaste fairy tale rather than uh, the kind of strange chaotic world of um, yeah. It certainly seemed of castles and kings and and mm. you know queens and princesses rather than uh, things that might happen in the woods of a, <laughs> of, a, of a northern European fairy tale. Yeah, yeah. I I th- I think you you had some thoughts about this 
idea of the the feminine being identified with nature in its in its wild state in in many early religious cultures I, I was actually reading recently Camille Paglia I don't know if you know her book Sexual Persona but in the in the first chapter she she discusses this this transition from an earth cult to a sky cult meaning the the transition from the dependence on a capricious unreliable and distinctly feminine earth you know something which has to be propitiated to an earth that is catalogued and ordered and is created by a a sky god that is somehow more understandable rather than emerging from a kind of obscure and unknowable void this is closer to what i was expecting but although we seem to be pressing close to that threshold at points it never quite get there i i wondered if you thought of that as a something that was intentional on on the part of the author or do you do you see it as a kind of artistic failure there yeah absolutely i think i it feels deliberate and i think for me it's very much about her her kind of fear of what she could experience yeah i think this this uh, this idea of a uh, kind of link of the the feminine and nature certainly in more you know cont- well not contemporary but uh beyond yeah so something like an earth cult uh when when certain groups get lumped together in this idea of being natural uh it tends to be women and children and you know what gets called savage and i think that's the 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 final one is is kind of what it's all about right that uh earth is exactly as you say considered something kind of unruly and uh disordered and now if we were still thinking that way maybe even you might say unevolved or somehow undifferentiated and i think all this talk of rawness certainly is a fear from both roland and from her about what would be found beneath the beneath the surface but then i think for ronald fraser himself that shift to then actually some kind of like ordered balanced nature very much reflects his kind of spiritual views that in fact that's that is in that's the case the the balance exists within nature itself rather than a balance of nature and uh, kind of like some kind of external order. I wondered what you thought about the idea that Judy is in some sense betraying her brother and and Roland in in her escape to this to this fantasy world the reason i think of it is because of these names i don't know if you looked into the to the names very much rob or did you think about that um, no it wasn't it wasn't actually something that i looked at cuz in the bible well in the catholic and orthodox canons uh, there is a book of judith but but it's relegated to the apocrypha by by the protestant church which might be something that we we could think of as further uh, emphasizing the her disreputable nature mm. but the story of the book of judith is that um a widow who is upset because the israelites don't don't think that god will protect them from their enemy the assyrians leaves in order to ingratiate herself with the enemy general Holofernes and and maybe even becomes his lover and then one night as he as he lies sleeping she cuts off his head and brings it back to the Israelites and is apparently courted many times after this incident incident but remains unmarried for for the rest of her life so her name seems synonymous with betrayal and and subterfuge somehow did did you see her escape or her trysts with this fantasy lover depicted as a kind of betrayal by the the writer no it's uh, it's really interesting it's not 
it's not something I thought about at all. And I suppose I found it very difficult. The the character of the brother is, I think, to contemporize so horrible, basically, <laughs> that it um, becomes, I found very difficult to read him, I think, in the way that Ronald Fraser intended. So an idea of betrayal, I, I, it was never something that crossed my mind because I found myself, whilst reading really willing Judy's uh, revolt against him. I mean, obviously, he she is going against his wishes, but it's something that I didn't necessarily have a problem with. And then with the relationship with Roland, I guess similarly, she, she, she definitely keeps him at arm's length, but... You, I feel you're so involved with her, this kind of journey that she's undertaking, that it never fe- felt to me like she was treating him unfairly. But that, I think it could be like a very contemporary view of, of what she's doing and, and her absolute right to do it. I was certainly on, on her side and, and viewed particularly Hubert as a an objectionable character but I th- I think there is a bit more evidence to suggest that the author at least wants to suggest the idea of, of betrayal. Another of the names, Roland, is in a sense synonymous with the betrayed. There is a French epic poem, The Song of Roland, from the 11th or, uh, yeah, or 12th century in which Roland, a knight in the in the court of Charlemagne, is betrayed by his stepfather, Ganelon, who informs the Saracens of his passage, and so he's ambushed at the Roncevaux Pass. And although it bears very little similarity to the story of Flower Phantoms, I think that the, the work is well known enough to for, for that to have been an illusion that, that mm. contemporary readers would would pick up on so then i suppose i'd be interested in trying to understand do you think that he is putting that out there as as a necessary betrayal that it's see knowing what then happens at the end of the novel where things are kind of maybe quite unplausibly all brought together in in some kind of happy ending <laughs> Do you think he puts yeah puts that out as a, this kind of like necessary betrayal, which is which is then part of a movement towards reconciliation at the end? Well, I, I tend not to view it uh, in terms of the, the the structure of the novel, but rather as something to do with the elusiveness of the subject. So, from from either side, Judy can't be pinpointed she can't be circumscribed by language there's there's always a part of her that will betray any attempts to do so Mm. rather than rather than seeing it as part of perhaps a very traditional comic structure which the the novel does have it is in a sense a, a comedy structurally you know it it ends in a marriage and there are various confusions and trysts. Her affections are, are played over, as happens in, in, in many traditional comedies. But I think the betrayal is, is, is something, something closer to an essential essence that, that can't be described. And this is maybe, I guess, where our readings perhaps differed in quite an interesting way. These kind of dualities that keep coming up in the text again and again, uh, even from the first page where she's always described as as golden or light and Roland is always described as kind of like dark uh, almost to the point where I kind of imagine him as some southern Italian man rather than uh, you know English uh, you know kind of described as dark and uh, always somehow associated with leather and and these yeah these uh, dualities return again and again and again this idea of balance within nature was something that then I felt was really what came out of uh, this kind of like strange relationship with the with the orchid and her her kind of journey, and then for me explained the 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 ending. But then that's that's perhaps quite undercut 
by what you've just been saying about this idea of treachery or or um that the because for me it was very much about her finding this kind of like essence and that actually within the novel this essence very much it like absolutely plays into this idea of uh the feminine and that kind of being more natural perhaps i'm kind of like reading a bit too much into uh the kind of buddhist influences which are very explicit in the text but yeah certain a certain idea of balance and harmony that means actually she does need to have this kind of like essential position uh within a greater whole uh but i am very interested in the idea that actually she might rebel or be kind of treacherous towards that is that the kind of thing you were you were saying yeah i i i kind of see judy as engaged in precisely the same task as roland judy is trying to to find something in in nature that will reveal something of its essence Mm, and essentially or ultimately is is unable to do so Roland himself fails in trying to understand Judy's essence and his failure is continually highlighted by the author, I think, who refers to him as overly literary, as a, as a poet, completely incapable of in, encapsulating Judy's, Judy's essence. But by that same token... The writer is also engaged in that in that task, right? So there is a kind of symmetrical structure there, whereby both the characters and the and the author are engaged in a task that that may ultimately be futile, namely true understanding of your object, whether it be nature or beauty or a person. I think actually we are very close in our in our readings I guess perhaps I just hadn't considered the idea of how successful they are but I think I I absolutely agree with your point that there's this kind of something you know at heart ineffable or unknowable in these kind of like essential things that the characters well certainly uh, Roland and uh, Judy are both looking for that's highlighted by something that the water lady says to her when she asks him if he exists so she's entered this this visionary world and she asks the water lily if he has any real existence and the water lily responds how can one be certain that another exists or indeed that there is any self but you can be certain in a sense that i exist as i appear to you for you have made me in this form within the world of your consciousness, and you are to this extent my creator. Um, this is a combination of a kind of epistemological and ontological conundrum, I suppose, and that essentially perhaps this is all we can ever hope to achieve, to realize someone's existence within our own consciousness and not to see beyond our systems of apprehension that perhaps our systems of apprehension in this case language uh, only reveal that much to us that they themselves allow and that any attempt to get beyond that is necessarily a failure yeah i mean the language that runs completely through this this section about yeah the the imagination and uh, intuition and an experience of course um it almost becomes quite kantian in its uh, yeah uh yeah and i an idea that things exist you know in some way given form by the imagination uh and what exactly that would mean they kind of yeah this this kind of like unknowability of something in itself and this seems to be the the struggle of the author, right? This is something that seems to preoccupy him, uh, particularly towards the end, that questions the whole artistic endeavour. He has Roland, who we've spoken of as a kind of counterpart of his, talk about how writers may not have the same power that artists working in other media 
could have and that he concedes quite unhappily the limits of language and obviously this artifact that we're talking about is a linguistic art- artifact absolutely yeah. yeah 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 i mean it's it's almost as if uh, some of the criticisms we might have of the novella itself uh, this this point where language and the style become almost breathless but they also lapse into a certain kind of orientalism which i think certainly to contemporary readers becomes quite difficult and actually maybe not even contemporary readers because as we uh, read together in the um only contemporary review we were able to find uh they they certainly mentioned that as the plants become uh more and more anthropomorphized it becomes a distraction but I guess that that criticism is almost already hard-coded into the book as he has begun to, you know, talk so much about the limits of representation in the text. On the surface, parts of this novel can look extremely conventional and that they belie a kind of philosophical depth that isn't necessarily on its, on its surface. In the morning, Roland came seeking Judy throughout the plant houses in Kew Gardens. She had forbidden him to do it, but he explained that he desired to see her at work, to know what it was about those flowers and ferns that, as he may have surmised, made her a little mad. Flowers were all very well. He knew about them, of course, through the images in literature. Without a doubt, he was aware they existed, as the occasion of numerous fancies and thoughts to do with grace, purity, transience and the like. But she believed that his heart never missed a beat at the sudden advance of a troop of daffodils in a meadow. An azalea blowing like flame did not bewilder him with irrational suggestions that one distrusted, of a presence hidden in the wind, of words spoken soundlessly about one. He did not feel the teeming of an unperceived order of existence, an inexpressible reality. Roland comes to see Judy at work, even though she's quite specifically told him not to do that. And actually, this is something that's very interesting. Uh, This idea of watching and being watched. So at this point, Roland's just watching her. And she then notices that he's watching. And he says something very strange. says, uh, I wanted to observe you, and you were so charming that I began to desire you. And she replies, the state is not favourable. Uh, that, yeah, that state is not favourable to observation. I could never work if I felt like that. So there's a very strange rejection of desire. But it's a strange thing about who looks and who is the one looked at because hmm. in specifically uh, talking about Judy's drawings of plants the the only two times these drawings are mentioned once at the beginning when she feels that they're not uh, she's not happy with them she says that the the there's no life looking out of them yeah so it says these drawings lack something that looked out from the real flowers and then that phrase is, is repeated exactly at the end when, when she creates these drawings or these, these images of flowers that she's, uh, that she's happy with. And curiously, those, those images are non-representational. Absolutely, yeah. So in fact, Roland says this when he sees her final, these, these images that she creates in a kind of like slightly hackneyed uh, like artistic trance or something. But he says they're as large as life and much less natural, reality looks out of these flowers. So there's something uh, about that position of, of looking, which is really fascinating about, about what it is to be looked at and what it is to look out. Uh, and it seems that Judy obviously feels very uncomfortable with this position of being looked at in the way that a plant would be looked at, uh, certainly in that kind of scientific gaze, or the gaze of, of someone's desire. But yeah, her journey or yeah this this kind of movement is it's unclear whether 
Judy reaches this stage, but certainly the plants are given the status of being allowed to look out. And I don't know if that also transfers to, to Judy. For me, there's something quite curious about the fact that she feels most satisfied with her artistic production when she has, in some sense, produced something that is more impressionistic and doesn't really try Mm. to define its subject in a kind of concrete way. And I think in the same way, the book is most successful in, in, in those moments of impressionistic anticipation before there is interaction between the the plants and Judy and when perhaps it is only a case of observation so there may be some relation there I found it very interesting that um, as uh, as Roland kind of tries to describe her in this kind of very <laughs> floral metaphors or you know this this kind of very strange poetic language she turns to him and says, I am now catalogued. And she's obviously un, you know, unhappy with his way. But it's, I found that very interesting in as much as, you know, uh, to catalogue something isn't necessarily to know it, uh, but to impose some kind of category on it from without. At the end of the, of the novella, when Roland sees the art that she's produced or this, this kind of like creative endeavour which has come out of this whole thing, and and he says this thing about uh, reality looks out for these flowers, and he also says the, the passage he mentioned earlier about uh, literature being unable to achieve what musicians and pa- painters can achieve. She replies saying, uh, "You have now learnt me," uh, mm. and that that difference between knowledge, knowledge and taxonomy to to fully understand something or to or to I guess not fully understand, but know organically somehow. Yeah, to come closer to an essence. I thought I might mention something about the the function of glass in the novel. It seemed to me that when Judy begins to have these hypnotic reveries, uh, it's always in the presence of light passing through glass. In her house, there is something which is called the, the fern window. This is a little cubby hole at the top of the, s- the stairs with glass carved with a pattern of ferns and in her most meditative moments she sits there alone and is seemingly transfixed by by a kind of transfigured world that's beyond it and glass even seems to function as a kind of tool for augury or, or divination in fact it's Ronald who mentions that the glass seems to gather and intensify and whiten the light it seems to me that this this world that appears through glass is of, of a much higher order of magnitude it's more intense it's it's a different plane to her ordinary gray existence and it's a place to which she seems to feel there may be some access if one only knew how to achieve that access in an early scene where she's sitting with Roland in a cafe, the, the sunlight falls through the glass of the cafe's window and she again experiences her, her silent reverie and her eyes glaze over to, to such a degree that Ronald is forced to wake her from it. She says, it's the glass I mean, I felt the light on me and I was thinking what it would like to be a, a plant in a greenhouse. And later she wonders how the cacti in the hothouse might vary in some degree when the light that, that passed through the, the greenhouse glass was so, was so magical. And it, it seemed to me that, that, that this, may be, this may have something to do with this idea of looking in and, and looking out especially with the idea that that to perceive something indirectly when there is some obstacle that transmutes its substance in a sense is raised to a higher a higher plane somehow of course we might see the influence here of another novel which has been read by scholars as the story of a young girl's sexual awakening and which uses glass in a similarly transfigurative manner and that's the second of 
Lewis Carroll's Alice books through the looking glass. Ah, yeah, of course. The second chapter finds Alice entering a garden of mysterious flowers that have acquired the power of speech. Simultaneously, glass is also something that that highlights the artificiality of of, uh, Judy's fantasy world. We're constantly reminded how her experiences in this exotic landscape are all taking place within a a greenhouse. Uh, I was looking at a book by Isabel Armstrong uh, called Victorian Glass Worlds, which is about uh, glass production and the imagination. And she mentions how a greenhouse quotes an exotic landscape rather than manifesting it. The artifice of her fantasy is is constantly pushed to the fore by the the writer. Yeah, this. Uh, yes, certainly. I think you're absolutely right about this idea of a refined or uh, highlighted kind of essence of things coming through. But yeah, being accentuated by by glass. Maybe it's precisely because glass distorts in some sense. It doesn't reflect things exactly as they are it transfigures them to a degree which is exactly what judy seems to have done when she produces those non-representational artworks towards the end yeah absolutely but it also seems to be i think as you were saying this thing that the the kind of novel completely struggles with repeatedly uh this idea of mediation and and what that means uh as perhaps we've already established, there certainly seems to be an idea in the in the novel that there isn't unfettered access to some kind of essential thing in itself or whatever that might be. But then there's this constant seeming uh, kind of agonising over the nature of that mediation. This focus on exper- constant focus on experience and how you could experience things, which I guess is quite traditionally seen as kind of like some unmediated access and is certainly held up in that juxtaposition when uh, Roland says um, the pleasures of thought, contemplation itself are a protection against life. And then Judy responds and says, but is experience that distracts me, not descriptions. And then he goes, and then Roland replies in turn and says, the simple truth is that your senses are the chief part of you you think with them so you know she she has this like extremely empirical way of this what would seem to be a- access to the world purely through experience which is somehow unmediated um and then she says this kind of very meta thing where she turns around and says your simple truth might do for a character in a novel mm. where truth thought to be simple but you have not completely described me no doubt i am not living to you but only a character a figment an assemblage of images. Uh, so there's a kind of this very sort of multi-layered thing going on where there's a recognition that even the idea of an unmediated experience is impossible. And to think, to imagine that is in itself a mediation, to, to pr- project this kind of like a series of images uh, onto a truth which is it could never possibly be covered by uh yeah that kind of imagination there is almost a a metafictional quality to this to this text at times and i felt and again i don't know if this is my projection onto it but it it felt certainly like the author's uneasiness in wanting to touch on these on all these themes of kind of like the ineffable quality you know the the un the impossibility of representing essences and and kind of yeah this idea of nature is somehow at base unknowable but the kind of irony of doing that within something that is in itself a representation mm. and so those struggles almost kind of like unconsciously bubble up to the fore you know i'm sure it's also a conscious decision on his part but it feels like those those are some kind of tension that's going on under the surface which it just can't stay under the surface. I don't know if it's too soon to bring in 
maybe some more detailed thinking about uh, Hubert, the brother. He's held up as the embodiment of a kind of certain rational practicality uh, that has that is linked with a kind of extremely capitalist, imperialist mindset. Was that something you you would agree with? His will is the only one that is achieved in in the novel by by the end. He believes that the the artworks produced by Judy may in fact fetch fetch a price, and so in essence, he is the only winner in the novel. He's the one that comes out of it undamaged, unscathed by any of the inner turmoil that the other characters have experienced. I I sort of felt that at the end, and again, this is where this, uh, for me, this, this kind of idea of balance and harmony comes back into it, that, yeah, as, as he kind of re-emerges as this figure, which almost seems, I think, shocking or disappointing as 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 you say like the winner or the the one who's somehow had the foresight to to see what was going on but it feels like yeah him and judy represent two halves of a of a whole that are kind of necessary and this is for me where the novel maybe lapses most into like traditional ideas of gender any kind of like enlightened thinking would be in the fact that both bits are necessary but the the extremely problematic bit is that there's kind of a male side of the coin which is rational and practical and ordered and has foresight and then there's the female which uh, you know is is irrational and creative and disordered and i find it interesting in the in this very last bit of the book as as judy and her brother are are speaking and they're completely reconciled she asks him if she she asks uh, hubert if she should marry roland and he replies yes if you can't marry someone like me and then she says to him i think i would if you were not my brother this this kind of incestuous relationship it reminds me an awful lot of a kind of pagan uh kind of creation myth mm. that um you know, you might have a brother-sister relationship, uh, one, you know, that there's some uh, essential split from an originary whole and that they, then you have, like, a brother and sister who perhaps procreate to create the rest of the world. Um, and it felt very much like that to me, that uh, they they both represent these kind of necessary halves. So, in a way, in that respect, it feels like... Uh, the author's suggesting uh, that actually Judy is also a winner here and that she has found her her place and that it's acknowledged and we come we have a whole again i I definitely recognize the the kind of duality there but hadn't exactly considered the idea that uh, to together these two sensibilities might account for a complete complete human being i saw them as essentially incompatible types judy loses something in compromising to to hubert's will there is a there is a note in the final line of the of the book to suggest that all may not be well um it's Mm. it's it's not uh, explicit but it uh, at least presents the suggestion that the, her troubles may not be over. The balance, I guess, maybe isn't like a perfect harmony, but the the two sides are necessary. Maybe more like a kind of like Nietzschean constant struggle between the two. This kind of yeah, Apollonian Dionysian, as as you point out very well, that the uh, the very last line certainly suggests that everything isn't isn't totally reconciled forevermore. Is this book for you more than a a, a, a curiosity, more than a, a strange anomaly in literary history? As a novel to sit down and, and try and pick apart, 
and as a kind of like uh, jumping off point for all these thoughts, it's it's absolutely fascinating. So yeah, a novel a novel to study, it's uh, or a novella to study, it's it's amazing. But I I wonder what if I was just to give it to a friend, I I don't know what their reaction would be. <laughs> I I come back again to the to the language. Aside from all of the fascinating ideas that are explored in the book, it's it's really the language that that excites me about this about this text. There's a real elegance and simplicity to to his writing, for the most part in the in the novel. But but those moments where he he moves towards something far more hallucinatory are. are extraordinary i think perhaps it's worth mentioning just how short this this text is how long does the printed copy run rob uh just 80 pages and i think i mean you're absolutely right about the language as as it enters into this kind of hallucinatory dreamlike state it's uh it's actually very difficult to put down uh i think i probably read the first 40 pages quite slowly and then the second the last 40 pages in a single sitting it's it's really gripping we hope you've enjoyed this episode of shirts podcast if you have any questions or comments about our discussion please write to us at shirtspodcast at gmail.com thank you for listening and we'll see you next time